0: Welcome to the inaugural season of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, the podcast. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co host, Yasha Kakis Wolf.
1: So, about a year ago, I was at Web Summit, which is this big event that takes place in Lisbon, and I had a little speaking gig, and I got onto the plane after I was done. And I was flying back home, and the way that I flew back home was to fly from Lisbon to Frankfurt and then Frankfurt back to the US, and when I left, it happened to be the night of, or it was the next morning in Lisbon, but it was the night of the national election here in the US. So as I get on the plane, uh, the news was Hillary's got the lead and Hillary's gonna win, and I hopped on the plane, it was like a four-hour flight, and I landed in Frankfurt, and I got off the plane, and everything had flipped. and Trump was forecasted to win, and they were starting to call it, and uh, at that point, they were, like, personally, so I'm not, not um, going to share anything that people don't know about me that if we're friends, uh, I happen to be a little bit liberal-leaning, and I was upset that this had happened, that the election had turned in the, in the path that it had, uh, but I didn't know what to do, so I almost had this kind of state of depression that I went into of, like, ah, crap, I've just spent what I thought was the energy that I had to support a candidate that I wanted, and it didn't seem like it mattered. It went the other direction. And so I got on this plane from Frankfurt back to the U.S. and I landed in the U.S. and I went into this funk for a few weeks where I was like, I just, like, does work matter in the same way that it mattered before? I don't know. And um, I ended up kind of figuring out how to get myself back together and go back into work and think about how I contributed every day. But I always had thought to myself, what would have been different if I actually would have said, all right, I'm going to take all that I've learned and do something different that's going to make sure that what we just saw in the national election doesn't happen again?
0: Well it's a good thing that uh, you made room for Jessica who's gonna be our guest on this podcast Jessica Alter is the founder of tech for campaigns so she had a similar thought process to you after the election she was pretty bummed but she uh, she was not a I guess a, a snowflake is the term uh, and she ended up doing
1: something about it so you call me a snowflake
0: I'm not calling you a snowflake although you do have a good amount of gray hair <laughs> Uh And Jessica took that energy that she felt and said, you know what, what's actually going wrong here is that there's not enough support at the local level for these elections. And it doesn't start with the presidential election. It actually starts with the local elections. And she wanted to create an organization which paired volunteers up with these local elections and swing the pendulum in favor of progressive candidates.
1: And it's kind of cool the way that she did it because... Part of the, I think, the shtick of the Bay Area is that the only people that we have here that can contribute to anything, if you care about technology, are engineers and product people. And, and like, no disrespect to engineers and product people, they can do so many amazing things. But her view was, if you work in technology, you probably have some idea about processes or tools or systems in addition to maybe knowing how to develop stuff that can contribute to these local campaigns. And and the creation of Tech for Campaigns really to support anybody in technology that wants to get involved in local campaigns, I think is pretty unique. Like, I don't know that there's anything like it anywhere.
0: Yeah, and it's it's picking up steam and uh, the organization is doing well. And we definitely don't want to turn it into an advertisement for her organization. So we'll let her talk about it in her own words. But I do want to say a few words about Jessica. You know, She was a very successful technology executive before she started this. She was the founder and CEO of a company called Founder Dating, which she recently sold, and it was a community for entrepreneurs and advisors to to connect and also connect with investors. Was that like you swipe right or Uh, left? Not not quite. Not quite. They did not find that interface to be useful, I guess, although LinkedIn is experimenting with
1: that. I mean, I say that like I understand it, but I've never used Tinder in my entire life because I've been married and you just don't do those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, we both missed that phase. Um, Jessica also led business development at Bebo, which was one of the pioneering blogging companies, and it was acquired by AOL. She's an HBS graduate, so we have another Harvard grad. And she sits on the board of the uh, Taubman Institute at the University of Michigan. So without further
1: ado, we'd like to present our interview with Jessica Alter. We really appreciate you being here
2: today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh,
1: Very much. We named this podcast after a story that Sunil put together about a year ago, um, This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. And um, one of the things that we were really interested in and excited about is talking about what kind of makes San Francisco, San Francisco. And to start with that, one of the kind of, I think, reflections that we've had is that most of the people that we meet in San Francisco aren't from San Francisco. Uh, so so we really appreciate you being here. And and uh, one of the things that we're really interested in, in learning a bit more about is where you grew up and not just where you grew up, like the name of the city that you grew up, but what was it about the area that you grew up that you feel like has a relationship in the Bay Area today?
2: Yeah. So thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and talking about like the culture and what I think it means to be in San Francisco and be around, and today especially. I grew up in in and around the Detroit suburbs, uh, and I think it's definitely a formative part of not only growing up, but who I am. Uh, I always say, like, you can take the girl out of the Midwest, but you can't take the Midwest out of the girl. So I'm definitely a Midwesterner at heart. Um, I think some people who meet me think my grit is like a New York grit, but Detroit is pretty gritty, <laughs> so. What's the, what are the Detroit suburbs like, like if you were to paint a picture of it? Well, so the suburbs that I grew up in are um, upper middle class, like, you know, privileged and nice, uh, to be honest, Jewish. Pretty Jewish. There's, I think, there's a side that's less Jewish and a side that is Jewish. I grew up in a per, in a pretty tight knit Jewish community, not like uber religious, but just a tight knit, very close. Everybody knows each other, invites yeah. each other. You know, it was a ni- it was a nice place to grow up. And we, actually, when people ask me like, "Oh, what's that like?" and like you made it out as if I like climbed myself out. I always say it was it was a great place to grow up at the time. I think it's changed a bit now. Yeah. Not that it's not a nice place to grow up, but I think. It was a bit more um, innocent then. Mm -hmm. And also, like, I just have been exposed to a lot more. At the same time, I was pretty sheltered growing up. It was definitely not a diverse place to grow up. I went to private school growing up. I went first to eighth grade. I went to a a private Jewish school. So, you know, I actually (laughs) had no non-Jewish friends until high school. So I I was just super sheltered. You know, at the same time, on the flip side, I had, like, a really tight-knit community of people. And I like, have a strong connection to my roots and my family and, and stuff like that. So, it, you know, I think it gave me a really strong grounding in, mm-hmm. you know, what's real. And I certainly also had two parents that are, like, extremely pragmatic, hardworking people, and that was instilled in me as at yeah. an early age. The sort of thing that was said in my household was, like, if it's that good, you don't need to talk about it. So I'm definitely a doer and not a talker. Yeah.
0: So then let's rewind to November of last year. And there was something that happened November of last year. I think it was an election Um, (laughs) in particular. I, I don't, or at least I try to avoid making political statements on the podcast. But basically, I think it's safe to say that San Francisco was in shock over the result of the election. Yet, there's a massive amount of wealth here and a massive amount of influence. What, in your view went wrong if you look at the San through the San Francisco lens with all of the the wealth and power that's accumulated here, why couldn't people affect the outcome that they cared so much about?
2: Honestly, it sounds, I think, repetitive and cliche, but I realized how out of touch I was. I mean, I always knew sort of I lived in a bubble, but I didn't I felt like, oh, I'm connected and I'm like, I'm from the Midwest, so I know what's right. going on, and I know how people are feeling. And I think, The divide, um, the socioeconomic divide, the opportunity divide, I call it, has gotten so much bigger. And while we were on, you know, one side of it, we just didn't notice. So I think that that's happened and people didn't really know how bad it was. I would count myself in that. Mm -hmm. The second thing I totally underestimated, and I think they're part and parcel, but I totally assumed that people didn't like Hillary Clinton. But they have, like, actual vitriol for her, or they had. And yeah. I thought, well, they might not like her, but they have to hate Trump more than they dislike her. Yeah. And that wasn't true. They had like real, people had real hatred for her.
1: Just like here in the Bay Area?
2: No, I think on other places. Yeah. And, and because we were more out of touch, we didn't realize that the vitriol for her outweighed the stuff he was doing or saying.
0: Right. So you woke up unlike a lot of people and just started getting to work the next day.
2: Well, actually, I was traveling at the time and I didn't get to work. My sort of crucible moment was when the Muslim ban came out. I had exited a company and was traveling for about six months and I came back maybe a week before the inauguration. And in quick succession, some terrible things happened, exclamation marked by the first Muslim ban, travel ban, however you want to refer to it. Mm -hmm. It was in that moment that I really said, like, no, I'm sorry, I cannot just post on Facebook or Twitter and like be okay with it. I was pretty simultaneously dismayed. Of course, I was abhorred at what was going on, you know, and what the executive orders that were passing and the deluge of, you know, PR and media. But I was also really dismayed at what I felt like was a lack of any meaningful response from the left.
0: Yeah.
2: And I think in general, like, I am, I guess, a Democrat, but I don't identify with the leaders of the party. Right. And I think that's a general problem, or the Democrats. I mean, I'm a Democrat because I don't vote Republican. Yeah. <laughs> Not because I love the Democrats right. so much.
1: The parties certainly feel different than they did when we were all kids. I grew up in the 70s, and you know, the Republican Party and Reagan stood for a very certain thing, and the Democratic Party stood for a very different thing with Dukakis and 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 and. And, and it doesn't, it just doesn't feel that way anymore at all. Everything feels completely blown apart.
2: Yeah. No, I agree. And I think there's a, a set of people that, especially sort of in the center, that don't feel like they have a real place to go. You know, so, the so Democrats tried to be great for everyone and, and are great for no one. And, yeah.
0: For context, sorry to interrupt you there. Could you tell the listeners what it is that you did just so? Sure.
2: When I heard about the Muslim ban, and also by way of background, my father's family was in the Holocaust. Um, Many of my cousins and aunts and great aunts and uncles perished. My my paternal grandmother uh, lived in hiding for several years as a non-Jew and was involved somehow. We don't know exactly the full story because she would never talk about it with the Belgian underground zone, like hiding Jews. And she helped several of our cousins to hide in convents and... So she lived with fake papers and, you know, in general was kind of a badass. I don't know if I can say that. Yeah. And I sort of said to myself, like, I don't think that she would be okay with me just like posting an article or like a rant. And I didn't feel okay with it. So I asked myself, what can we do that actually makes a difference? I appreciate marching and I, I think there is a place for it. It's not the thing that makes me feel better. And I think that there's a lot of people that felt that way and still do. And one of the things we, I noticed is, like, there's a ton of people at the silver lining of, you know, the 2016 election cycle is that I think a lot of people woke up. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to give people with certain skill sets a way to channel that. I think if, if you don't give them a way to channel that, it could, that's, like, the biggest tragedy of all. So uh, I had an idea that we could sort of build a competitive advantage if we took a lot of the people that I know who are in tech and digital and have really valuable skill sets and got them to volunteer their time and skills on political campaigns rather than just give money or um knock. yeah so we just tested the hypothesis I at the time texted a friend of mine Pete Kazanji who uh is now one of my co-founders and has been a friend in tech for years and we put up a google form We both emailed a hundred friends just to see, like, would you do this before we, like, made an organization out of it. And within a few days, we had about 700 people say yes. And we made it sort of hard to say yes on purpose. Like, we were like, how much time will you give? Give us your LinkedIn. What are all your skills? Like, we made it a form. Then we realized, like, you know, there's something here. I don't think we created that sense of urgency, but we, again, gave them a way to channel it. So... Fast forward to today, we provide non-presidential political campaigns with world-class tech talent and at times infrastructure through both technology that we're building and also our small army of 3,000 volunteers Mm -hmm. that we deploy as volunteers onto political campaigns.
1: Are the volunteers all from the Bay Area or are they all over?
2: They're all over and all of the teams are remote. We deploy them in teams of three to five and on sort of a project basis. Mm -hmm. About 50% are either in the Bay Area or um, New York, but the rest are all over and you can can be anywhere. You know, obviously there's a high concentration in the Bay Area and New York because we are from here, but people are everywhere.
1: I I think it's a fantastic idea and the organization is really impressive. Is there a call out that you have for more types of, a certain type of skill that you're looking for? I I signed up in the original form. I'm just a marketing person in real life, so I don't think I met qualifications for you. But um, But but what are you looking for right now?
2: Actually, marketing is a big part of what what we do um, or help with. So I think our biggest area that we would ask for people, because when we say tech for campaigns, people think engineers, but it's the entire sort of stack that you would have at a tech company from social media managers all the way to data scientists. So I would say the biggest areas that we'd love people in are marketing, specifically paid and email. If you've ever gotten... Email messages from campaigns or central bodies in the Democratic Party, I'm sure you want to improve them. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> I do. Uh, um, yeah.
2: Those are two really big ones. And then we're always looking for great front end and UI people.
1: Yeah.
2: I encourage anyone to try to get involved, but those, those, those are the top three. Great.
0: Let's talk about uh, your optimism and pessimism as it relates to San Francisco really looking through this political lens because you've seen a lot, you've seen tech, you've seen politics, you're deep, deep into both and you know a lot of other stuff. I want to first start by talking a little bit about Sam Altman going to the rest of the country to reach out, Mark Zuckerberg going to the rest of the country to reach out. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that's a productive exercise? What does it accomplish?
2: I don't know. I think it's productive for them, but I don't know that it affects the city in any major way. So I'm not like anti it. I think it's good and probably has some other motivations, which I'm fine with. So I think it's productive, but not like for the city of San Francisco necessarily, or like scalable.
0: Mm -hmm. Optimistic or pessimistic then about the city in general, have you seen a change, a fundamental enough change in the city that, okay, you know what, I feel good. Like in 2020, things will go the way that San Franciscans in large part want it to go.
2: So I guess I have two answers. I'm optimistic in general because um, I'm an entrepreneur, uh, but I'm also like pragmatic. So I think that not just in San Francisco, but in many places, people have woken up and I'm, I'm optimistic about that. They, they actually want to do something. And I think that's different. Because in San Francisco and a couple other, you know, major cities around the U.S. that are fairly blue, they can't really do anything in their city. And now San Francisco people are willing to do things for people in other places. And that's, you know, one of the things that we uh, enable and love. So on that stuff, I'm I'm really optimistic. And I don't know if it's San Francisco-centric, but it certainly started, um, you know, we started it here. There are things about San Francisco that I don't know if I would go as far as to say I'm pessimistic, but I'm worried about. You know, I've lived here now a little over a decade, and, you know, the homeless problem is noticeably, noticeably bad. Like, much, much worse. Um, I never, ever remember seeing all the encampments I see now. And I, I don't feel like it gets talked about enough. I don't feel like the best minds are on it. I feel like we're not helping the people on in our own backyard or in our front yard. And so I really worry about that. I really worry about the divide within the city and, you know, taking care of our own. But I think it's emblematic of this sort of monoculture that we, ha- we do have in San Francisco and that on one hand is awesome and enables so much entrepreneurship and tech. But I think like anything, the pendulum can swing too far and you become so monoculture that you're like disconnected from other things. And then you, you can't build better technology and you can't build better products because you're disconnected and I don't wanna live in a place where we only talk about tech. I wanna talk about interesting things and right. I am multifaceted and I think a lot of people here wanna be.
0: What's a uh, common misconception that people that don't live here have about the San Francisco or Bay Area in general that's just totally untrue?
2: Yeah. So I actually asked a bunch of my friends that live in the Midwest, um, <laughs> when they think of San Francisco people, what do they think of? And you know, I got some predictable responses, tech, One person, several people said hills, but a lot of the stuff was like out of touch, idealistic, rich. And I I don't think they're totally untrue. I mean, I already said, I think that we are a bit out of touch um, with especially sort of middle America. The thing that I think they sort of assumed with it is that because you're rich and idealistic, you're really big givers. Um, on the sort of social good side. And I think we love to talk about social good. But if you look at actual, like, philanthropic giving activity, New York wipes the floor with us. Yeah. Right. The Robin Hood Foundation, which is, like, a New York-centric foundation that deals with poverty in New York. And then in San Francisco, there's the Tipping Point Foundation, which just deals with poverty in, in San Francisco. And they each have these, like, epic annual galas where they try to raise all the money for the year that they're going to need. Yeah. So the Robin Hood Gala in 2016 raised just over $60 million, And the Tipping Point Gala raised just over 13. So New York raised 4.6 times as much as, as we did. I, I just don't feel like it's a super philanthropic city. Yeah. And by the way, that doesn't mean that I think everything should be solved with philanthropy. I don't. Um, and I think there's some argument to be made that it definitely shouldn't. But people aren't as giving as what, a culture. Why is
0: it about, actually, let's just, let's just go down that thread for a minute. In the days of the Steel Titans, Carnegie, et cetera, with their excess money, they would give and name large libraries after themselves and hospitals and basically build monuments to themselves, which was a nice byproduct. Why don't you see that here? I mean, you have, to a lesser extent, Zuckerberg, Chan Hospital.
2: And Benioff.
0: Benioff. I guess the way that people express giving back is seed investing in your next startup company. Yeah. Yeah. Why is there not a philanthropic?
2: I don't know. I guess I turn it back to you guys. I don't know why it's not as philanthropic. I haven't figured out yet. I don't know if it's new money Mm -hmm. versus old. Uh, You know, going back to my upbringing, because we thought it was important, like that was a big, big deal growing up in my household. Like philanthropy, charity doesn't even have to just be money, but you give your time. You give that part of your life. Sure. And I've, I think it's it's noticeable here. like People don't get as involved and they don't give. And I think there's easy excuses like people are working so hard and blah, blah, blah. And there's easy exceptions to the rule. I think obviously Zuckerberg and Benioff are doing amazing things. There's no sure. question about that. But um, as a rule, I don't think that the average person who makes a bit of money is giving in the same way that they do in other major cities. Yeah. That all I can do is hypothesize that it's sort of like two things one new versus old money i'm not sure if that's true and two is um you know this sort of feeling in san francisco like we can figure out better solutions than other people and that audacity is sort of what makes san francisco amazing it also like anything can hinder us
1: i I think it's a wonderful point to end on um, with the exception of we want to know who you recommend to all the listeners of who you pay attention to on Twitter? Maybe your top two Twitter follows.
2: Oof, who are my top two Twitter follows? Can I look up the actual Absolutely. handle?
1: Definitely, we've yeah. had a couple of guests do that. Yep. As you're doing that, I, I think that thread that you brought us down is really important um, to take past this discussion too. I think the arts community in San Francisco, I think, feels the exact same way there there isn't a lot of giving though there's a lot of interaction with the broader technology community, which makes up a lot of the, the people that live in San Francisco itself. And it's gotta be something more systemic that's going on. Like maybe we've introduced kind of process in technology that has systemically changed the way that every other kind of organization should engage with this community. Or maybe the inverse is we're just all not in touch in the way that we need to be. And, and we've got a civic responsibility that we need to figure out a new way to take ownership of.
2: Or is it
0: just what happens? So you have Tokyo, you have London, you have Manhattan, mm-hmm. and you have Los Angeles during boom times. It's just an inevitability. It's what the happens cycle. to the artists, they get pushed out, uh, they get pushed to Brooklyn, to Williamsburg, and then now Williamsburg is unaffordable.
1: Is that our destiny? I don't know. Globalization and capitalism. Those two forces are powerful.
2: Yeah. I'm actually optimistic that what have characteristically been known as second and third tier cities are and will continue to have a renaissance like a Pittsburgh, like a Charlotte, like a Detroit, hopefully soon, you know, Portland, Denver. I think people inevitably will not have to, but just want to not pay $50,000 a year for school. Yeah. Um, and then they'll be pushed to those other places. And I, I think that, you know, medium and long term will be positive. Yeah.
0: So your two favorite Twitter followers. I can't
2: find one of them, but <laughs> um, I actually think uh, we didn't get into it, but on all of the sexual discrimination stuff that happened in the Valley lately, I found Sarah Lacy to be just honest and willing to say things that no one else would say. So yeah. that's one of them that like I found myself going to Twitter to read what she would say. And I'm pretty blunt, but I was like, wow. I find her to be awesome. And I also think um, Kara Swisher is similar in that. So those are two people that I follow and think are are pretty awesome. Fantastic!
1: Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a wonderful discussion. We really appreciate you being here.
2: Yeah, thank you guys so much.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, the podcast. We are always looking for great topic suggestions and suggestions for future guests. Email us at info at com if you have suggestions on either. Thanks for spending some of your time today with us, and we hope you enjoy the rest of season one.